Welcome to another podcast from the Burlington Congregation of the Church of God International. You can find out more about CGI Burlington on our website at cgiburlington.org. Book of Job, and as I mentioned in the prayer, it is a unique book. It's quite a different book from other books in the Bible. And I call this study Decoding the Book of Job because it is a coded book. And if you just read it sequentially, without understanding the keys to the book, it's easy to get confused. And in fact, if you read the commentators on this book, they differ widely. They have all kinds of opinions as to what the book means and and what the topic of the book is. But before we actually look at the book, let's just look at some of the men of the Bible, because not only is the book unique, Job himself is unique. If we look at Abraham, he was a liar and a coward. Jacob was a deceiver. Moses was a murderer. David was a murderer and an adulterer. And Paul was a murderer, putting many Christians to death. And then there's Job. God says of Job, if you look in chapter 1 and verse 1, In the land of Uz, there lived a man whose name was Job. God says, this man was blameless and upright. He feared God and he shunned evil. So of all the men in the Bible, this is a man that had incredible integrity. He had incredible character. He was a remarkable man. In fact, if you drop down to verse 8, God speaking to Satan says, Have you considered my servant Job? Listen to what God says of him. There is no one like him on the earth. Imagine that. Of all the people on the planet, God in this conversation with the devil says, There is nobody like Job on the planet. Blameless and upright, fearing God and turning away from evil. So these statements set Job apart. They also create confusion. Because when we go into the the book of Job, we are presented with this image of Job as a blameless man, as an upright man, as a perfect man. And with that in our mind, as we read the book of Job, it gets confusing. One of the keys to understanding the book of Job is to realize that these statements about him are time-stamped. They are true in the moment. It's as if I were to say to you, I I like bananas. My kids don't really like bananas, but I like bananas. And when you get a banana that just turns ripe, and it's got the spots on the skin, I'm telling you, that is just sweet. So I could have a banana in that state, and I could say to you of the rest of the bananas in the bunch, these bananas are perfect. I could be just so, and I would be, I'd be so enthusiastic. i say, they're perfect. Don't come back to me six weeks later and say, Adrian, look at these bananas. You said they were perfect. My statement was time-stamped. It was perfect at that time. Don't come back six weeks later and say, you said they were perfect. So the statement about Job's perfection is time-stamped. Let's look now at the key to really unlock the scripture, the book of Job. We have to go to the back of Job, Job 40, 
and get this key. Job 40 and verse 8. God says to Job, this is God speaking, Would you discredit my justice? Would you condemn me to justify yourself? This is at the end of the book when Job comes to repentance and God tells him his problem. That you would condemn God to justify yourself? So this is the key. So the book is very tedious. It's the sort of book that if you start reading it, it's basically impossible for you to read the book of Job. I'm going to say strong words. I'm going to say I think it's impossible to read the book of Job from the beginning to the end and never stop and ask yourself, how much more? How much longer? Kind of flip and think. It gets tedious. Because the book is structured like this. It has prologue, an introduction. And it has an epilogue, a conclusion. But the bulk of the book is dialogue. It's this conversation going back and forth. And it gets t you, get, you get lost. I don't know if you've ever been in a situation where somebody asks you a question. And you start answering the question. And you're talking so much that you forget what the question was. It's happened to me. I said, what was the question again? That's what happens in the book of Job. You start reading it, and there's so much dialogue that you forget, what is this book about again? We get buried in it. I'm going to show you, unequivocally, Job was self-righteous. That was his problem. And we're going to see this, and, and I think at the end of this, we'll be crystal clear on this book. A lot of the commentators say that this is a book about human suffering and showing human suffering. It is not. It is not a book about human suffering. The book has a simple question that it's answering. Why does Job fear God? Why does he serve God the way he does? This is a remarkable man. There's nobody like him on the planet. And the book is answering the question, why? It is a wager between God and Satan. Let's look at chapter 1 and verse 6, where it shows that one day the angels came to present themselves before the Lord, and the accuser, the slanderer, also came with them. And the Lord said to the slanderer, where have you come from? And the accuser answered the Lord from roaming throughout the earth, going back and forth on it. This is what the scripture says, that he seeks whom he may devour. So he's up and down in the earth trying to see who he can devour. And notice this. It is the Lord that points out Job. It's the Lord that calls Satan's attention to Job. The Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? There is no one on earth like him. He is blameless and upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil. This is like having a vicious dog come in the room, and it hasn't eaten all day. And I say to the dog, have you seen Pastor Ramakan? <laughs> I'm, I'm drawing attention to this man. That's what God is doing. For some reason, God wants Satan's attention on Job. The word considered is translated from three Hebrew words. Each one by itself can be translated considered. Uh, some, leb, al. Each one of these words means considered. So what God is really saying to the, to the accuser is, have you considered, considered, 
considered my servant Job. The first considered means to set, to set your attention. The second means in the inner man. And the third means above all. So, so God is asking Satan, have you set your attention in your inner self on this man above everything else? God really wants Satan to, to, to focus on this. Verse 9, the accuser responds, does Job fear God for nothing? Have you not put a hedge around him? and his household and everything he has, and bless the work of his hands, so that his flocks and herds are spread throughout the land. So here comes the accusation. Stretch out your hand and strike everything he has, and he will surely curse you to your face. So Satan and God have history. Lucifer rebelled against God and became the adversary. There's history. So when God says to the accuser, have you seen Job? This is a piece of clay. Look at him. And look at you. And what Satan is saying to God, I believe, I'm speculating here, is, come on. You created us, and you created us to be interested in ourselves. So I was there in heaven with you, and you took everything away from me, and you gave me earth. So I had nothing. Of course I'm going to fight back. And Job would do the same thing. If you take everything away from him, of course he'll curse you to your face. He's no different than me. So God says, okay, let's see. And this begins the book of Job. Verse 12, the Lord said to Satan, very well then, everything he has is in your power. But on the man himself, do not lay a finger. This is what the book of Job is about. It's a wager between God and Satan. To see why does Job serve God the way he does. Then Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. This is a chilling statement. This is chilling. There's a wager between God and Satan. And Satan leaves. He's on a mission. And he's on a mission to destroy Job. Verse 13. It shows now that <clears throat> the attacks begin. And what Job shows us are the devices of the devil. This is a high-stakes wager. Lucifer, or Satan, I should say, is pulling out all the stops. He has to win this wager. So we get to see the devices that the devil can use when it's high stakes. Verse 15, the Sabians attacked and made off with his oxen, and they put the servants to the sword. So we see that Satan can stir up aggression in groups of people and have them attack. That is a device. And puts them to death. In verse 16, the fire of God fell from the heavens and burned up the sheep and the servants. This is another device that he has. The prince of the power of the air. He can cause fire, lightning, I don't know what it was, hail, something, to fall from heaven and burn up everything. He has this power. Verse 17, the Chaldeans formed three raiding parties, again, stirring up aggression in groups of people, and made off with Job's camels, and put the servants to the sword. And then in verse 19, a mighty wind swept in from the desert. So all of these we see, Satan has these devices, these abilities. 
to bring down a servant of God. Now, after doing all of this, we come to verse 20. At this, Job got up and tore his robe and shaved his head. And he fell to the ground in worship. Amazing. In worship. Naked I came out of my mother's womb, and naked I will depart. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. Phenomenal. In this, Satan lost the wager. It was a wager. It was a bet. I bet you if you do this, he will curse you to your face. Okay, go ahead. Take everything away from him. And he says, praise be the name of the Lord. He lost. Verse 21. Or sorry, chapter 2, verse 1. Another day the angels came to present themselves before the Lord. And again, uh, Satan presents himself. Uh, just a footnote here or a side note. It's interesting that God holds meetings. People hate meetings, but God holds meetings. Okay? So the Lord asks, where have you come from? And again, he's up and down in the earth. And he says again, to provoke Satan, have you considered, considered, considered my servant Job? There is no one on earth like him. He is blameless and upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil. And he still maintains his integrity, although you incited me against him to ruin him without any reason. Skin for skin, a man will give all that he has for his own life. This is Satan's frame of reference. He has been successful right from the beginning with Adam and Eve, that people are self-interested. And so let's attack his actual body. And then you'll see what he's made of. The Lord said, very well then, he's in your hands, but you must spare his life. God is taking Job through a process. And it's important that he not die. Because he has to go through this process. Verse 7 of chapter 2. Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. And again, we see another device of the devil. He smote Job with sore boils. So it is possible for the devil to inflict sickness on us. What's interesting now, verse 9, his wife said to him, do you still hold fast to your integrity? Curse God and die. So Job wipes, uh, sorry, Satan wipes out Job's entire family, but he leaves the wife. That's scary. So Satan saw something in the wife that he could use. And she was so despondent, so discouraged that she lost her faith and just says, curse God and die. Job says to her, you speak as one of the foolish women. Come on. We have been, we know God. And you're acting like a pagan. Shall we indeed accept good from God and not accept adversity? In all this, in all of these attacks, Job did not sin. Notice now the author adds, with his lips. Uh-oh. Something is happening. The author deliberately adds, with his lips. This is a change. But he didn't sin. Again, Satan lost the wager. He said, if you do this, he will curse you to your face. He didn't. He suppressed any kind of cursing. But something is happening. We're just two chapters into the book of Job. And this is a long book. We have 40 more chapters to go. 
We never hear from Satan again. He disappears. The same way he disappeared from the presence of the Lord. And that was a chilling statement. He's on a mission to destroy. For the next 29 chapters, Satan is busy. He is active. And we, we have seen the devices of the devil in this just first two chapters. The next 29 chapters, it is Satan unleashed. Now we see his real devices. Satan means, or Hasatan, is the accuser, the slanderer. And what we have is 29 chapters of unmitigated slander. This is the devil at his best. And he comes through friends. And I shouldn't call them friends. I should call them enemies. These are Job's enemies. But if I call them enemies, you'll miss the subtlety and the craft of the devil. So let's call them frenemies. Okay? Frenemies. People who come close to you and attack you. This is the devil's best work, the accuser. And so the rest of the book now, and, and be careful, people love to quote Job or the book of Job. If you're going to quote the book of Job, particularly from chapter 2 to 31, be very careful. You need context because most of the, the dialogue between chapter 2 to 31 is Satan-inspired. It is the accuser doing his best work. We'll show you that. So the question now is, why does Job serve God? What is his motive? Let's just quickly go to 1 Corinthians 4, where we see that motive is not easily understood. It's tricky. We can do good things for bad reasons. And we can do bad things for good reasons. Uh, motive is tricky. 1 Corinthians 4, Paul addresses this issue of motive. In verse 2 he says, Moreover, it is required in stewards that a man be found faithful. But with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you. So the Corinthians were judging Paul. And he's saying, hey, no problem. You want to judge me? No problem. It's a very small thing that I should be judged by you or of man's judgment. Yes, I don't even judge myself. Here's the Apostle Paul. I don't even judge myself. For I know nothing by myself, yet am I not hereby justified. But he that judges me is the Lord. Therefore, judge nothing before the time, until the Lord comes, who will both bring the light, bring to light the hidden things of darkness, and will make manifest the counsels of the heart. And then shall every man have praise of God. Paul is saying, you want to condemn me? You want to accuse me? You want to judge me? Go ahead. It doesn't bother me. Because I don't even judge myself. Motive is tricky. All I know is, I'm justified. And when God comes, he will bring to light the hidden counsels of the heart. And this is what God is doing with Job. He's bringing to light the hidden counsels of the heart. Back to Job. Let's look at, let's get a sense of what is motivating this man to perform a level of righteousness that is unprecedented. God says of him, there's no one like him in the earth. Job 3.
Job 3 and verse 25, after the calamity, all this calamity has struck, Job says, listen to this confession. What I feared has come upon me. Hmm. What I feared has come upon me. What I dreaded has happened to me. Huh. This is a righteous man. Perfect love casts out fear. Why is such a righteous man plagued with such dread? Is it this fear, this dread, that is motivating him to perform a level of righteousness that is unprecedented? Let's go to Job 31. So this is the beginning. Let's go to the end. Job makes his final confessions. And in Job 31, verse 23, listen to this. For destruction from God was a terror to me. What? You lived in terror of destruction from God? And by reason of his highness, I could not endure. Job feared God. Oh, yes, he did. But he was terrified of God. It wasn't fear God as in love and respect God. It was, this is a mighty God who can crush me. And I'm terrified of putting a foot wrong. Job, let's go back to Job 1. Not only is he terrified of putting a foot wrong, he's terrified of his children putting a foot wrong. Job 1 verse 5. When the days of the feast had run their course, Job would send and consecrate them, speaking of his children, and he would rise early in the morning, showing how motivated he was, and offer burnt offerings, he's a high priest, and burnt offerings according to the number of them all, so he'd offer for all of his children, ten children, and Job said, it may be that my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus did Job continually. This was a man racked by fear. He was just in a state of fear. And so whenever his children got together, he was afraid they may have done something wrong, and so he would get up early in the morning and offer offerings because he was afraid God might destroy them. And then when it finally happens, he says, the thing that I feared has come upon me. So let's now just do a quick survey of the book. And before I do, Job 19, verse 2, just to show how vicious the devil is. The devil's most vicious attacks come after the calamity. Calamity is physical. It's the psychological attacks that are his worst. Job 19, verse 2, Job laments to his friends. Really, he's speaking to the devil, but he doesn't know it, because the devil is working through his friends, his frenemies. How long will you torment me and crush me with words? This is what Job, the book of Job is all about. How the accuser crushes with words. And so from chapter 2 until 32, we see the devil crushing Job with words. The structure of the book, I mentioned prologue, dialogues, epilogue. In the dialogues, the, the way it is structured, first of all, is poetic. It's poetry. 
but it is structured where Job laments. So for seven days, you have, I have to give them some credit. They come to comfort him. And for seven days, they say nothing. They just sit with him. And he says nothing. Finally, after seven days, he gets up and he curses the day of his birth. So remember he said he didn't sin with his lips up to that point. But then he finally begins to talk and he curses the day of his, his birth. And then the way the dialogues are structured... They're structured in rounds, three rounds, three friends, three rounds. Round one, the oldest friend, Eliphaz, they reckon he's about 80, speaks first, because it's a culture where you respect age. So the oldest man speaks first. So after Job laments, Eliphaz speaks. Then uh, Bildad, the second oldest, speaks. They reckon he's about 60, uh, and Job is about 70. And then the third man uh, Zafar, the youngest, speaks. That's round one. Each time, so round one goes, Job laments, friend one, accuses. Job responds, friend two accuses. Job defends himself, friend three accuses. That's round one. Then they do it again round two, same thing. Then round three, except when at the end of round three, the third friend runs out of steam. Job is so vigorous in his defense, that no matter what they try to pin on him, he's got a defense for it, that by the third round, the third friend gives up. And it's only when they stop accusing that Job stops talking. If they kept going, the book of Job would be longer, because Job would not give in. He would defend his integrity. It's only when they stop accusing him that he stops talking. So that's the structure of the book. Let's just do a quick pass through it, just for story flow, so we don't get lost. Job 1.22. In all this, Job did not sin, nor charge God foolishly. That's in the calamity so far. Job 2.10. He replied to his wife, you're talking like a foolish woman. Shall we accept good from God and not trouble? In all this, Job did not sin in what he said. Now that phrase, in what he said, is important. If we go to Job 42 and verse 2, I'll uh, just read it very quickly for you. He says, at the end when he's talking to God and he's confronted by God, he says, I know that you can do everything and that no thought can be withheld from you. So when the author says he did not sin with his lips, something was happening up here. And God called him on it and he confessed. Now I know that no thought can be withheld from you. Quickly, uh, you, don't turn there, but Proverbs 10:19 says, In the multitude of words, there wanteth not sin, but he that refrains his lips is wise. So when it says, in all this Job did not sin, he was refraining his lips. Beginning in chapter 3, he unleashes his lips. And they go, believe me, they go. They flap. And in the multitude of words, sin is not lacking. So let's do a quick pass through the book. Job 3.2, he said. Job 6.1, then Job replied. Job 9.1, then Job replied. Job 12.1, then Job replied. Job 16.1, then Job replied. Job 19.1, then Job replied. Job 21.1, then Job replied. Job 23.1, then Job replied. Job 26.1, then Job replied. Job 27.1, and Job continued his discourse. Job 31.40, the words of Job are ended. Okay, finally he stops talking. The only reason he stops talking, his friends stop accusing him. Job 32, 1, 
So these three men stopped answering Job because he was righteous in his own eyes. The scripture tells us. This is why they had to stop. Job 32.2 But Elihu, son of Barakal the Buzite, the family of Ram, became very angry with Job for justifying himself rather than God. Job 33.31 Pay attention, O Job, listen to me. Keep silent and let me speak. If you have anything to say, answer me. Speak, for I desire to justify you. If not, listen to me. Keep silent, and I will teach you wisdom. This is the youngest man of the, of the group. We don't know how old he is. Let's, perhaps he's 20. And he challenges Job to speak up. This is the first time Job doesn't reply. Every time a friend speaks to Job, he replies. This time, he says nothing. Elihu brings something to the table that stuns Job. And he has no response. Job 38.1, Then the Lord spoke to Job out of the storm and said, Job 41, The Lord said to Job, Job 43, Then Job answered the Lord. Verse 4, I am unworthy. How can I reply to you? I put my hand over my mouth. I have spoken once, but I have no answer. Twice, but I will say no more. So finally, when God speaks to Job, he comes to a realization about himself that embarrasses him. Job 46. Then the Lord spoke to Job out of the storm. And then Job 42.5. Job says, I've heard you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. That's why I hate myself. I abhor myself. And I repent in dust and ashes. Job had a big problem. A big problem. And God took him through a process that he came face to face with himself. And he repented wholeheartedly. This is the story of Job. And we get lost in all the words. So now that we understand the plot, let's go back through it with a little more detail. First, let's introduce the characters. You already met Job's wife who basically, at the behest of the devil, says to Job, curse God and die. Curse him and die. Come on. Curse him and die. And he ignores her. Let's now meet Job. What's said about Job, apart from his character, is that there was a man, this language is important, in the land of us whose name was Job. Job means the persecuted. Notice that he was in the land. He was not of the land. It doesn't say Job the Uzite. It says Job was in the land. The same way we would say Joseph was in Egypt. This is an Israelite, a man of the covenant, in an Arabian country. He's not an Arab. He's in the country. He's a man of the covenant. His friends, Job 2, verse 11, when, these, when Job's three friends heard of all the evil that was come upon him, they came every one from his own place. Eliphaz, the Temanite. Notice it doesn't say Eliphaz who was in Teman. It's the Temanite. He's from Esau. He's not a person of the covenant. He's not a covenant man. And Bildad, the Shuite, 
Again, not a covenant man. He's a descendant of Abraham, but through Keturah. He's not through the Isaac and Israel line. And Zophar, the Namathite, another Edomite. So these three men, they're his friends, they're Arabians, they're not covenant people. They are descendants of Abraham, but they're not covenant people. Very important. The fourth friend comes out of nowhere. He appears suddenly in chapter 32. The commentators are all over the place with him. His name is Elihu. Some of them say he's Jesus Christ. The same way that the three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, were in the fire, and then we saw four. They're saying he just appears this fourth man, that he must be Jesus Christ. Others say he's an idiot, that he's just a young, hot blood who basically adds nothing to the dialogue. He just repeats everything that the other elder men have said, and everything in between. Elihu is critical to the story of Job. He's the only man who is introduced with lineage. Job has no lineage. The friends have no lineage. The wife has no lineage. But Elihu has lineage. Elihu, the name, means Yahweh is my God. He is a man of the covenant. It says here, uh, Job 32, verse 2, Then was kindled the wrath of Elihu, the son of Barakel, the Buzzite, of the kindred of Ram, against Job was his wrath kindled, because he justified himself rather than God. Elihu means Yahweh is my God. Barakel means God blesses. And Ram means high and exalted. So it's Yahweh is my God, the son of God blesses, of the family of the high and exalted. This is credentials. The author is trying to establish Elihu's credentials before Elihu speaks. In fact, I believe, my belief is, Elihu wrote this book. I believe he was sitting there the whole time taking notes. And that's what enabled him to write the book. Speculation. Uh, interesting, Eliphaz means God of gold. Bildad means Baal has loved. And Zophar means rough. So just the names alone give you the keys to who you should take seriously and who you should be careful you listen to. Another key to understanding this book is to understand that the dialogues take place on two levels. Two levels of dialogue taking place. On level one, there's a personal argument. You know, Jan, Jan and I are talking, and he says something to hurt my feelings. And so I retaliate, and I hurt his feelings, and then he says something that's hurtful to me. And so we're at it back and forth, and there's this personal argument taking place. That's level one. There is a personal argument taking place here, and it's deteriorating. It's getting worse. Level two, there is a theological debate taking place. Job, this priest, high priest, almost you could think of him like a king of of the area is stricken down and he's pitiful. And his friends are coming to comfort him and to tell him about God. And he is basically saying to them, you don't know about God. This is what you should know about God. And they're saying to him, look at you. If you were a man of God, you wouldn't be in this state. Our religion is true. Yours is false. 
And so there's two different levels of conversation here. And this is important. Because God says of Job in the end to his friends. He says to the friends, you have not spoken correctly of me, as has my servant Job. And when people hear that, they think Job has a pass. And everything Job said is correct. This is wrong. If we understand that there's two levels of dialogue taking place, at the theological level, everything Job said is correct. And the friends don't know what they're talking about because they represent false religion. But at the personal level, this is where Job sinned. I want to now give you a taste of the character of these men. The best way I would describe their religion is karma. They believe in karma. Basically, if you do good, good will follow. And if you do bad, bad will follow. No exceptions. This is their religion. Let's look at Eliphaz, round one. Chapter four, Job four, verse seven. Arguing with Job. Consider now, who being innocent has ever perished? Where were the upright ever destroyed? As I have observed, those who plow evil and those who sow trouble reap it. At the breath of God they perish. At the blast of his anger they are no more. So he's just telling Job in no uncertain terms, the reason you're suffering, you're an evil man. This is the way it works. You're a wicked man. You can't get away with it. I know you've been doing it all secretly, but look, it's all out in the open now. Drop down to verse 12. Eliphaz is confident of his position because he had a dream and he had a vision. He says this. A word was secretly brought to me. My ears caught a whisper of it. Amid disquieting dreams in the night, when deep sleep falls on people, fear and trembling seized me and made all my bones shake. A spirit glided past my face, and the hair on my body stood on end. It stopped, but I could not tell what it was. A form stood before my eyes, and I heard a hushed voice. Can a mortal be more righteous than God? Can even a strong man be more pure than his maker? If God places no trust in his servants, if he charges his angels with error, how much more those who live in houses of clay, whose foundations are in the dust, who are crushed more readily than a moth, between dawn and dust they are broken to pieces, unnoticed they perish forever. Are not the cords of their tent pulled up, so that they die without wisdom. This was a spirit that came to Eliphaz in the night and told him what Job's problem was. Job's problem was that God crushes men because even his angels he doesn't trust. He charges his angels with error. How much more will he charge the Son of Man? Clearly, this is from God. The only problem is, God is doing nothing here. In the book of Job, from chapter 2 to 40, 38 I should say, God does nothing. He just watches. 
Satan is the one who's active. And this is Satan at work. So Eliphaz is confident. A spirit came to him and told him this. So he's telling Job what's what. Round three. Job 22, verse 4. Is it for your piety that he rebukes you and brings charges against you? Isn't your wickedness great and your sins endless? Now look at, listen to these false... I don't know where Eliphaz gets this from. Job is an upright man. He's blameless. Listen to these accusations. You demanded security from your relatives for no reason. You stripped people of their clothing, leaving them naked. You gave no water to the weary, and you withheld food from the hungry, though you were a powerful man owning lands, an honored man living on it. And you sent widows away, widows away empty-handed and broke the strength of, their fa of the fatherless. That is why snares are all around you, why sudden peril terrifies you, why it is so dark you cannot see, and why a flood of water covers you. Where does this come from? These are false accusations, and this is the devil's best work. He's out to destroy the servant of God. Remember, Satan is the accuser, and the accuser accuses. And often he has to work through people. So, brethren, we have to be very, very careful that we do not participate in the Satan, in, in the devil's work. Let's quickly look at Bildad. That's Eliphaz. He's the oldest. Bildad, in, 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 we'll just go to round two of Bildad. Job 18 and verse 5. The lamp of a wicked man is snuffed out. The flame of his fire stops burning. Terrors startle him on every side and dog his every step. Calamity is hungry for him. Disaster is ready for him when he falls. It eats away parts of his skin. Death's firstborn devours his limbs. Dropping down to verse 19, Job lost all his children. He has no offspring or descendants among his people, no survivor where he once lived. People of the West are appalled at his fate. Those of the East are seized with horror. So again, these are the attacks from his good friend Bildad. Let's quickly look at Zophar uh, in round 2, Job 20, verse 12. Though evil is sweet in his mouth, and he hides it under his tongue. So he's basically saying to Job, you look righteous on the outside, but we know you've been up to stuff secretly. Though he cannot bear to let it go and lets it linger in his mouth, yet his food will turn sour in his stomach. It will be the venom of serpents within him. He will spit out the riches he swallowed. God will make his stomach vomit them up. In the midst of his plenty, distress will overtake him. The full force of misery will come upon him. In the midst of his plenty, distress will overtake him. The full force of misery will come upon him. When he has filled his belly, God will vent his burning anger against him and rain down his blows on him. God is beating you up because you're evil. And then when in round three, Zophar just runs out. He's just got nothing left. So he stops. And then Job gives a final defense, and then he stops. Let's now look at some of Job's defense. Remember that Job is the victim of slander and false accusation after calamity. So first he suffers calamity. And then on top of that, they use the calamity to falsely accuse him. To say all of this has happened because you, you didn't feed the poor and you took advantage and you, you were a wicked man. 
So he's lost his reputation. This was a man that was well respected. Now everybody looks at him. They, they, he, says, he says they spit on him. He says at one point that he can't even call his servant to bring him a cup of water. People spit at him. They despise him. So he's lost his reputation. What's ironic, you'll hear the defense, is while Job vigorously defends himself from false accusation, he falsely accuses God. So he does to God the very thing that he is suffering from. Let's see. Job 13 and verse 13 says to the friends, keep silent and let me speak. Then let come to me what may. Why do I put myself in jeopardy and take my life in my hands? Sounds like he's thinking of committing suicide. Though he slay me, yet will I hope in him. I will surely defend my ways to his face. This is a phrase that I hear people quote from Job. Though he slay me, yet will I trust in him. Sounds righteous. It is a wicked thing to say. What a wicked thing to say. What Job is saying is, look, I know I'm innocent. I did not do anything. But clearly, God is destroying me. I know there's only one God. And I know he's powerful. If it turns out that this God has poor character, that he would slay, shed innocent blood, what, what can I do? Even if he sheds innocent blood, I will still worship him. Because he's God. It's just that he's a powerful God. And he's capricious. He does what he likes. It's a terrible thing to say. But Job is so wrapped up in his own righteousness, he's willing to, we'll say, throw God under the bus in the common vernacular. So whenever we quote from Job, the book of Job, we need the context. Job 16 and verse 9. God assails me and tears. Remember, God is doing nothing. Satan is the one who's active. And God is watching Satan and Job, Satan and Job, what's going to happen, what's his motive. God is not doing anything except observing. Here come the false accusations. Job defends himself, but he bears false witness, breaking the commandments against God. Job 16.9. God assails me and tears me in his anger and gnashes his teeth at me. My opponents fasten on me my opponent has fastened on me his piercing eyes. People open their mouths to jeer at me. They strike my cheek in scorn and unite together against me. God has turned me over to the ungodly and thrown me into the clutches of the wicked. All was well with me, but he shattered me. He seized me by the neck and crushed me. He has made me his target. Chapter 19, verse 5. If indeed you would exalt yourselves above me, and use my humiliation against me, then know that God has wronged me. Though I cry violence, I get no response. Though I call for help, there's no justice. Chapter 27, verse 2. As surely as God lives, who has denied me justice, the Almighty who has made my life bitter, as long as I have life within me, the breath of God in my nostrils, my lips will not say anything wicked, and my tongue will not utter lies. I will never admit that you are in the right. Till I die, I will not deny my integrity. This is a remarkable man. They are piling up accusations against him. And he's saying, I will never admit that you are right. I did not do any of those things. 
as long as there's the breath of, the breath of God in me, I will not deny my integrity. Amazing. I will maintain my innocence and never let go of it. My conscience will not reproach me as long as I live. It's almost like his integrity is becoming his idol. It is more important to him than God's integrity. And he will question God's integrity and question God's character, but never his own. Job 31 is a remarkable speech. It's at the end of all of these accusations. And he stands up and he gives his final defense. And it's just a, it's a wonderful book, uh, chapter to read. I would recommend, I won't read it now, but I recommend you read it. This is a righteous man. He basically disavows idolatry, lying, adultery, lust, greed, abuse of power, lack of concern for the poor, misuse of the land. He just shows clearly he did none of these things. And then he finally concludes in chapter, verse 35 of chapter 31. Oh, that I had someone to hear me. I sign now my defense. Let the Almighty answer me. So I've given my defense. I'm innocent. Make God answer me. Let my accuser put his indictment in writing. God is not an accuser. But this is how he sees God. Surely, so if, if God would put his accusation in writing, Job says, surely I would wear it on my shoulder. I would put it on like a crown. I would be so proud if somebody could finally come to me with their accusation. And I, I wouldn't hide it. I'd put it out there for everyone to see, to show that God is wrong. I did not do these things. I would give him an account of my every step, every single step I took every single day. I could show you I did no wrong. I would present it to him like a prince. I would, if I had my time with God, I would just be so proud and so confident because I've done nothing wrong. The question we have to ask ourselves as we try to understand this book is where does righteousness come from? Where does righteousness come from? Romans 4. Romans 4, and verse 1. What then shall we say that Abraham, our forefather according to the flesh, discovered in this matter? If in fact Abraham was justified by works, he would have something to boast about. What does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was credited to, him, credited to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, wages are not credited as a gift, but as an obligation, as a debt. So righteousness is a gift. God just ascribes it to us. We don't deserve it. He just assigns it to us. If it came by works, it would be something God owes us. And so Job is, is, is consumed and obsessed with his works. And he's saying to God, you owe me. Look what I have done. Where's my paycheck? Righteousness does not come by works. Abraham was declared righteous before he was circumcised. The works had nothing to do with it. The works demonstrate the faith. But the faith is what made him righteous. 
However, to the one who does not work, but trusts God, who justifies the ungodly, their faith is credited as righteousness. This is what Job had to learn. Righteousness does not come from us. Isaiah 64, 6 says, All of us have become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous acts are like filthy rags. There's nothing we can give to God that we can say is righteous. Righteousness comes from God, not from us. Okay, so that was Job defending himself. Let's just quickly look at the theological debate, because that was the personal attacks and personal response. There's also a theological debate taking place in Job. And in Job 42, verse 7, the Lord said these things to Job. After the Lord said these things to Job, he said to Eliphaz the Temanite, I am angry with you and your two friends. So all of their talk we can completely discredit. God says he's angry with them and his two friends because you have not spoken the truth about me as my servant Job has. So God, wouldn't you just love to be in a debate with somebody? And God himself comes and says, you haven't spoken the truth as my servant Adrian has. Uh, God settled the debate. Theologically, Job was spot on, and the friends had false religion. But this doesn't mean that everything Job said was right. It just means what he said theologically was correct. Let's look at the theology of Eliphaz. Job 15, verse 7. Are you the first man ever born? Were you brought forth before the hills? Do you listen in on God's counsel? Do you have a monopoly on wisdom? You know, it's like uh, you're in the church and you say, you know, this is the true church. And people get offended when they hear that. How can you, are you the only church? You think you're the true church? All these churches can't be wrong. This is basically what's happening here. They're, they're looking at this priest and saying, like, do you think you were born before the hills? You know, are, do you think you know everything? Do you listen in on God's counsel? Do you have a monopoly on wisdom? What do you know that we don't know? What insights do you have that we don't have? The gray-haired and the aged are on our side, men even older than your father. So these are men that really respect their ancestors. And they're saying, look, our wisdom comes down to us from our ancestors. And so are you going to disagree with our wisdom? Bildad, Job 8. Please inquire of past generations and consider the things searched out by their fathers. For we were born only yesterday and know nothing. So again, same thing. We're just here today. Let's go back into the wisdom of our ancestors. And our days on earth are but a shadow. Will they not instruct you and tell you? They're, they're trying to tell Job, listen to us. And if you're not going to listen to us, listen to our ancestors. Why are we regarded as cattle and considered stupid in your sight? Job had no respect for their theology. He just didn't respect it. And they're saying, like, why, won't you why, why do you think we're stupid? Let's listen to Zophar now, Job 11. Are all these words, uh, verse 2, are all these words to go unanswered? Is this talker to be vindicated? Will your idle talk reduce others to silence? Will no one rebuke you when you mock? You say to God, my beliefs are flawless and I am pure in your sight. Oh, how I wish that God would speak, that he would open his lips against you. When God actually speaks, he opens his lips against the friends. Can you fathom the mysteries of God? Do you think you know everything? Can you probe the limits of the Almighty? They are higher than the heavens above. What can you do? They are deeper than the depths below. What can you know? Their measure is longer than the earth and wider than the 
This is a hot debate. Who knows the true God? Let's look at Job and, and his theology. So first of all, I just want to establish that he was a leader. Job 29:21. Job says, people listen to me expectantly, waiting in silence for my counsel. That's the kind of man Job was. After I spoke, they spoke no more. My words fell gently on their ears. Now he's having to put up with the servants spitting on him. Job 13.7, he asked them, Will you speak wickedly on God's behalf? Will you speak deceitfully for him? Now, I just want to share with you some of Job's theology. Job 16 and verse 19, he says, Even now, my witness is in heaven. My advocate is on high. My intercessor is my friend, as my eyes pour out tears to God. Job seemed to understand something of the Godhead, that he had an intercessor and he had an advocate in heaven. Job 3, verse 11, Job's view of death. He says, why didn't I perish at birth and die as I came from the womb? Why were there knees to receive me and breasts that I might be nursed? For now I would be lying down in peace. I would be asleep and at rest. Job didn't believe he had an immortal soul. He believed that if he had died at birth, he would be dead. Then he asks in verse four, chapter 14, verse 14, If someone dies, will they live again? All the days of my hard service, I will wait for my renewal to come. You will call and I will answer you. You will long for the creature your hands have made. Job understood the resurrection. Chapter 19, verse 23. Oh, that my words were recorded and that they were written in a book or engraved in rock forever. Listen to this. I know, he's telling his friends, his theology, I know that my Redeemer lives and that in the end he will stand on the earth. Can you believe this? This man understood. I know my Redeemer lives and in the end he will stand on the earth. And after my skin has been destroyed, when I'm dead and buried, and my skin has been destroyed, and he's, he's at death's door. He's in a pitiful state. It looks like he's going down. Nobody knows he's coming back. He's dying. After my skin has been destroyed, yet in my flesh I will see God. We know from Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 15, there are physical bodies and there are celestial bodies. And he is saying, even though I die, I know I will see God. I myself will see him with my own eyes. I and not another. How my heart yearns within me. This is Job's theology. And this is what God means when he says, you have not spoken correctly the truth about me as my servant Job has. Job's view of the wicked. Job 21 verse 7. He says, why do the wicked live on, growing old, <clears throat> and increasing in power. So the friends, their theology, their doctrine says, if you're wicked, you die. You're punished and that's it. If you're good, you increase. And Job is saying, well, why do the wicked live on? And they increase in power. They see their children established around them and their offspring before their eyes. Their homes are safe and free from fear, and the rod of God is not on them. 
Their bulls never fail to breed, their cows calve and do not miscarry. They send forth their children as a flock, their little ones dance about. And then he goes on to say, they say to God, leave us alone. We have no desire to know your ways. Who is the Almighty that we should serve him? What would we gain by praying to him? But their prosperity is not in their own hands. So I stand aloof from the plans of the wicked. So in the friend's theology, if you're wicked, that's it. You Only the good can do well. In Job's theology, he understands God is allowing the wicked to do what they want now. He's not dealing with them. He's dealing with Israel. So Job 42, verse 8, God settles the theological debate. He says to the friends, now therefore, so you could imagine, let's say, you know, you're in the hospital, maybe you're in Arabia, and your good friends are Muslims, and they come to visit you. And while you're healthy, you know, you might say, God bless, and if God wills, and you talk about God, but you don't drill down into your doctrine. We just talk about God. God bless, if God wills. But if you were sick and they came to visit you and you got into theological debate, it would be clear then when we say God and they say God, we're not saying the same God. Job 42, verse 8. Now, therefore, take for yourselves, speaking to the friends, seven bulls and seven rams and go to my servant Job, the man of the covenant, and offer up a burnt offering for yourselves. And my servant Job will pray for you. For I will accept him so that I may not do with you according to your folly, because you have not spoken of me what is right, as my servant Job. So God shows the true religion is with Job. Okay, I know I'm running out of time, but I want to talk about Elihu. So Elihu, as I mentioned, the only one with lineage, and very clearly a man of the covenant. What happens with the exchange with Elihu? There is no personal dynamic here. So the friends have been attacking, or Job has been attacking, sorry, the friends have been attacking Job, Job has been defending himself. So that personal dimension muddies the communication. Then on top of that, there's this theological debate where they're telling Job about God, and it's a false God, and Job is defending his religion. So because of all of this, the communication is distorted. When Elihu speaks, it's one covenant brother talking to another covenant brother. There's no theological debate. And Elihu was never attacking Job. So Job is not on the defensive. And Job was not putting down Elihu. So they can just talk without these other dynamics. Job 32, verse 2. Elihu, the son of Barakel, the Buzzite of the family of Ram, became very angry with Job for justifying himself rather than God. He was also angry with the three friends because they found no way to refute Job, and yet they condemned him. Now Elihu had waited before speaking to Job because they were older than him. But when he saw that the three men had nothing more to say, his anger was aroused. So Elihu, the son of Barakel the Buzzite, said, I am young in years and you are old. That is why I was fearful and I didn't dare to tell you what I know. I thought age should speak, advanced years should teach wisdom. But it is the spirit in a person, the breath of the Almighty, that gives them understanding. It is not only the old who are wise, not only the aged who understand what is right. So this is in stark contrast to Eliphaz, who said, a spirit glided by me and told me this. 
Elihu is saying, the spirit within me has given me understanding. Job 32.10. Therefore I say, listen to me, I too will tell you what I know. I waited while you spoke. I listened to your reasoning while you were searching for words. I gave you my full attention. But not one of you has proved Job wrong. None of you have answered his arguments. Do not say we have found wisdom. Let God, not a man, refute him. But Job has not marshaled his words against me, and I will not answer him with your arguments. So I'm not in this personal argument the way you were. I'm just going to talk to Job. Which is very different if you look at the Zophar uh, 20, verse 3. Zophar says, I hear a rebuke that dishonors me, and my understanding inspires me to reply. So he was motivated by, by ego. Uh, Elihu is just talking to Job, one brother to another. Verse 15. They are dismayed, and they have no more to say. Words have failed them. Must I wait now that they are silent, now that they stand there with no reply? I too will have my say. I too will tell you what I know, for I am full of words. The spirit within me compels me. On God's behalf, I must talk. This is awful. What has happened here, and I don't know how long this took, but the whole time God's character has been disparaged. And the spirit within Elihu is burning. He's going to burst. He has to defend God's character. He says, I am full of words, and the spirit within me compels me. Inside, I am like bottled up wine, like new wineskins ready to burst. I must speak and find relief. I must open my lips and reply. I will show no partiality, nor will I flatter anyone. Chapter 33, verse 8. Job's friends were searching his actions for sin. Elihu was listening to his words. Job 33, verse 8. You have said in my hearing, I heard the very words. I am pure. I have done nothing wrong. I am clean and free from sin. Yet God has found fault with me. He considers me his enemy. He fastens my feet in shackles and keeps close watch on my paths. But I tell you, in this you are not right. For God is greater than any mortal. Why do you complain to him that he responds to no one's words? For God does speak. God does respond to prayer. He does respond to words. Now one way, now another, though no one perceives it. He can speak, verse 15, in a dream, in a vision of the night, when deep sleep falls on people as they slumber in their beds. He may speak in their ears and terrify them with warnings. Elihu is saying, God can do this. But notice what Elihu adds. The reason God would do this in verse 17 is to turn them from wrongdoing and keep them from pride, to preserve them from the pit, their lives from perishing from the sword. God is not a destroyer. God is a preserver. So it is possible that he speaks in dreams, nightmares, to terrify you, to turn you to the way of what is right. So, Job, if you're already walking the way of what is right, if you're already walking in integrity, and you're having nightmares, it's not from God. God does these things with a purpose. And he's not endorsing Eliphaz's dream. He's speaking directly to Job. In verse 7, Job says, When I say, my bed shall comfort me, my couch shall ease my complaint. So he's, he's just 
crawling into bed. Then he says to God, you scare me with dreams and terrify me through visions so that my soul chooses strangling and death rather than my life. So this is what he's speaking to, not Eliphaz's spirit that came in the night. He's speaking directly to Job, saying, yes, God can speak through dreams. Then he goes on to say, so God can speak through dreams. In verse 19 he says, or someone may be chastened on a bed of pain, as Job is, with constant distress in their bones, so that their body finds no, their food repulsive. And he goes on to say, God can cause people to suffer. And dropping in verse 26, uh, sorry, uh, verse 27, they will go to others and say, I have sinned, I have perverted what is right, but I did not get what I deserved. This is the understanding that Elihu brings, that God is not a robot. God is not just a cosmic law. God is not karma, where if you do bad, bad will come and haunt you. God is a being that is compassionate. And if you do wrong, yes, he might send correction. But once you repent, he will restore you. God is in the restoration business, not in the destruction business. So he's saying to Job, if you're having nightmares, God, is, God could be trying to correct you. But if you're already correct, then the nightmares are not coming from God. And if you're suffering calamity, God will send calamity to correct you. But if you're already correct, the calamity cannot be coming from God. Because God is not in the business of destroying. He's in the business of restoring. And remember, this is the first time somebody speaks to Job, and he just sits and listens. He has nothing to say. Job says, I am innocent, but God denies me justice. Although I am right, I'm considered a liar. Although I'm guiltless, his arrows inflict an incurable wound. Listen to Elihu. Is there anyone like Job who drinks scorn like water? So the book opens up saying there's no one like Job on the earth. And Elihu says there's no one like Job on the earth. In the beginning, it's like he's the most righteous man. Elihu is saying he's the most wicked of men. Wicked of men. The accusations he has against God. He keeps company with evildoers. He associates with the wicked. Because he says there's no profit in trying to please God. So listen to me, you men of understanding. Listen to this. Far be it from God to do evil. Far be it from God to do evil, from the Almighty to do wrong. How could you think this? Far be it from God. He repays everyone for what they have done. He brings on them what their conduct deserves. It is unthinkable that God would do wrong. This is unthinkable that the Almighty would pervert justice. Abraham understood God. When God set out to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah, Abraham stopped him and said, if you find 50 righteous there, will you destroy the righteous with the wicked? And God said no, because Abraham knew he wouldn't do that. And so then Abraham started to negotiate and bring it down to 40. What about 30? He got it down to 10. And Abraham thought, surely there's 10 people there. I have saved the city. A few minutes later, the whole thing's up in smoke. But Abraham knows God will not destroy the righteous with the wicked. There was only one righteous man there, and God took him out. And then he destroyed the wicked. God does not destroy the righteous. Far be it from God to do evil. I'm just going to rush through this so we can finish. But Elihu says in verse 36 of 34, Oh, that Job might be tested to the utmost for answering like a wicked man. To his sin he adds rebellion. 
Scornfully, he claps his hands among us and multiplies his words against God. It's interesting, in the end of Job 31, when he finishes his defense, Job looks at the ground, and in 38 he says, If my land cries out against me, and its furrows weep together, I have, if I have eaten its fruit without money, or have caused its owners to lose their lives, let briars grow instead of wheat, and stink wheat instead of barley, the words of Job are ended. So the last thing Job does is he looks at the land and says, If I've done anything wrong, then let, let me be cursed. Elihu, in defending God, chapter 35, verse 4, points Job to the heavens, to the clouds. He says, I would reply to you and to your friends with you, look up at the heavens and see, gaze at the clouds so high above you. If you sin, how does that affect God? What Elihu is saying to Job is, God is not vindictive. He's not angry with you and just trying to hurt you because you did something to hurt him. God is far above all of that. All God wants to do is bless and restore. I'll, I'll wrap up. I know the time is gone. But this is just a wonderful book. Once you have the structure, you won't get lost in the dialogue. It's interesting that Elihu is pointing to the clouds. And as he's pointing to the clouds, a storm brews. A storm builds. And God then speaks out of the clouds to endorse. People say that Elihu, God ignores him. God endorses him by actually speaking out of the very clouds that Elihu pointed to. And then God then, as he, as he engages Job, he asks him a series of questions that basically say, who do you think you are? Come on. And humble Job. And Job realizes how great God is. And Job falls in love with God. Now he serves God out of love not out of fear. He comes to realize who God is. Job never, uh, God never tells Job what actually happened, that it was a wager. This is irrelevant. What's relevant is that Job knows God loves him. God's restoring him. God, we can trust God. God is in the business of building, not destroying. This has been a podcast from the Burlington Congregation of the Church of God International. We hope you are blessed by it. To find out more about CGI Burlington, visit our website at cgiburlington.org.